The young men that you just saw on the video are men that we met when we were in Haiti in 2018. We worked with them, so we have some uh, indication of their character and uh, the scope of their, their ministry. <clears throat> These young men have uh, had uh, a mission in mind. You saw their, uh, what they call no place left. They're seeking to leave the cities and go into the more remote areas where there has not been previously a gospel witness. These, these young men have been traveling to a place called Jeremy. It takes them about seven hours from their home. They have to travel by bus, by boat, by motorcycle or uh, bicycle, and they have to walk. So they're going to these remote areas. They've already started three churches. They continue to uh, reach people for Christ. And uh, what what they're trying to do is to have a a church where they can meet together so that they can do the training for uh, the uh, other churches. Also, they would like to have a place where they can stay so that when they don't have to travel this far, it takes them that long to get there. They can get there, have a place to stay and remain in place. They want to build a church. They have plans for it. The total cost of that church is $12,000. Their current church is some about four poles and a tarp over top of it. We would like to help them in their endeavor so that the church is broken down into the cost of its cost uh, 3,000, 3,000, 3,000, the thirds. Third for the foundation, a third for the structure, a third for the roof. We'd love to be able to provide at least a third of that. So if you would like to help in this ministry, we want you to be able to give toward that. You can take one of the envelopes and the offering uh, in the chair in front of you. Drop that in the offering when you like. Just mark it Haiti or uh, Mission Church, whichever you would like. You can also do that online. Indicate that if you'd like to give toward that. And so uh, we want you to have that opportunity. Well, let's, uh, let's get our Bibles and look to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. If anyone... Uh, loves books filled with adventure and excitement. They'll certainly love the book of Revelation. It's the ultimate action thriller. It contains drama, suspense, mystery, passion, and horror. It tells of apostasy by the church. It describes an unprecedented economic collapse And the ultimate war of human history, the the war that will truly end all wars. It describes natural disasters rivaled in intensity only by the flood, the great worldwide flood of of Noah's day, as God pours out his wrath upon a sin-cursed earth. It speaks of political intrigues that will lead to the ascendancy of the, the most evil and most powerful dictator the world has ever known. And finally, it, and most terrifying of all, it describes the final judgment and the sentencing of all rebels, angelic and human, to the lake of fire. The book of Revelation is a book of astounding drama, horror, and pathos. 
But it's also, amazingly, a book of, of hope and joy. It has a happy ending with, with sin, sorrow, and death forever vanquished. And it, and it will take, you see, some time for this drama to fully unfold. So John does what any good writer was do, does. He gives us a preview of what is going to happen here in this great book. And when he does this, he unveils the theme of the book, which is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, when we look at our, our chart, our outline of the book of Revelation, what we see is that he's just going to take us right to the center of the book, to the heart of the event that will occur, the second coming of Jesus Christ. And he's going to give us this great preview of this second coming. So if you look with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 1, beginning in verse 7, just two verses this morning. Revelation, chapter 1, verses 7 and eight. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this incredible revelation that you have given of us, of yourself, and of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we look forward with anticipation to what you have to show us today. We pray that our hearts and our, our minds would truly be open to receive the, the wondrous truth that you have for us. God, we ask you to Help us to understand it, to to put it into the depths of our hearts so that we can live it out and and have a hope and an expectancy. For those who have never truly trusted you today, I pray that you would draw their hearts to you, to your glorious majesty, and that they would come to you in faith and have the hope of eternal life. So, Father, we commit this time to you now, and we ask your blessing upon your word through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. And these just two verses, John presents four great truths about the second coming. And the first is this. Christ is coming of necessity. He's coming of necessity. And the first verse there, verse 7, says, Behold, he is coming. Now here we find the first great prophetic oracle in the book of Revelation. Behold! Did I get your attention? Well, that's exactly what that word is intended to do. It's intended to arrest our attention. It's intended to arouse our hearts and minds to receive what is about to be presented. And you see, the, the book of Revelation is, is filled with startling truths that require our great attention. And so as we go through this book, we're going to see this word appear 25 more times. It says, behold, pay attention to what is about to be said. 
And fittingly, the first thing that John calls our attention to is the, is the coming of Jesus Christ. And notice that, it, that it's presented to us in the present tense. He doesn't say he's going to come, but he says he is coming. It's, it's presented as if it's happening right now. It, it's developing right in this moment. And um, the use of the present tense, it, it's showing us that his coming is certain. He's showing us that his coming is imminent, that it could happen at any moment, and he's showing it that is of necessity. Now, it's certain. You see, the Bible repeatedly affirms that Jesus will return. In fact, that truth appears in more than 500 verses throughout the Bible. It's estimated that one in every 25 verses in the New Testament refers to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And today, I want to give you five compelling reasons why Christ must return. This is the necessity of his return. First, God's promises require it. God's promises require it. Now, as the the Jews were acutely aware, God promised that when the Messiah came, that he would rule and reign. Now, that's what they were really looking for. They were looking for uh, him, to the Messiah, to come and and be a king, be a mighty warrior. But um, uh, we find the very first promise of that in Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10. It says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. They were expecting this great king. Psalm 2 is the classic verse, beginning in verse 6. And he says, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 6, also predicts the, the Messiah's earthly rule. And he says, for a child will be born to us, and a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And Jeremiah also recognizes the blessedness that Israel will experience under Messiah's reign. 23 and verse 5, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And listen, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. And Israel will dwell securely. And this 
And, and this is his name by which he will be called the Lord of our righteousness. Now, those predictions and many others which speak of Christ's coming to rule and reign were not fulfilled the first time that Jesus came. So, it is necessary that Christ return so that those prophecies can be fulfilled. God's promises require it. Secondly, Jesus' teachings require it. We could say Jesus' ministry, Jesus' life even requires it because Jesus repeatedly taught us that he would return. That great passage in John chapter 14 and verse 2, he says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. If I go and prepare a place for you, what? I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. You know, in a, in a parable, one of the parables in, in Luke chapter 19, Jesus pictured himself as a nobleman who, who has a kingdom. And he leaves temporarily and then he comes back. And when he comes back, he rewards those servants that were faithful and he destroys those servants who rejected him as their master. And he's picturing for us the way that he is going. He has come. He is going to go away for a while. Then he is going to come back. And he is going to bring about rewards and judgments. And, you know, Jesus is presented to us throughout the Bible, really, as prophet, priest, and king. We talked about that a little bit last week. As, as prophet, Jesus reveals God. As priest, he redeems us. As king, he's the ruler over our lives. And, and Jesus is, is prophet. Or, yeah, he, he came. We sang this morning, living, he loved me. Jesus left heaven, came to the earth, lived a life before us, displaying for us the perfect, the, the exact nature of the character of God before us. He revealed God to us, not in his life and in his teachings and in his miracles. He, he's living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. There he is a priest. Not only did he die to save us, but he buried, he says, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justifies Freely and forever. You see, he is our priest. But he is yet to be fully our king. Now, he is Lord. And he's the, he, he is the king of those who believe in him. But he's not king of the earth at this point. It's coming. One day, we sang, he's coming. Oh, glorious day. And he's coming as king. So his teachings, his life, his ministry require that we that he return. And we could add to that that, that that every New Testament scripture about the coming of Christ is given to us from the spirit of truth. And so in a sense the entire the veracity of the Trinity is dependent upon Jesus returning. Thirdly, God's program for the church requires it. In, in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10, Jesus promised that church, he says, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, 
I also will keep you from the hour of testing. That hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, in order to keep that promise, he must return for his church before the hour of testing, which is another way of speaking of the great time of tribulation upon the earth. That event, when he returns for his church, is known as the rapture. Now, listen very carefully because this is described for us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. And he says this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. You know what Paul said after he said that? He says, comfort one another with these words. See, the the rapture of the church is the first phase of the second coming. And, And following then the rapture, Christ will reward his church. And he's going to reward all the faithful service. And then, you see, what this is important because that presupposes Christ's return so that he can reward us. Once we have been rewarded, then he tells us that we are coming back with him to the earth. In Revelation chapter 19, we come with him. So he has to have come for us prior to that so that we can come with him so god's program for the church to rescue it from the terrors of the tribulation to reward it for reward it for faithfulness and to vindicate it before the entire world requires that christ return fourthly god's covenant with israel requires it now when jesus came the first time The nation of Israel overwhelmingly rejected Jesus as their Messiah. See, the Jews not only crucified him, but they displayed the greatest resistance to the gospel of any people. They were the first to persecute the church and the first to martyr one of its leaders. Israel was the premier persecutor, opposer of the gospel of all peoples on the earth. Now, in light of that rejection, Paul poses an important question in Romans chapter 11 and verse 1. He says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Answer, by no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Listen, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. God has not rejected his people. The Bible tells us that God is not through with Israel. They are his covenant people. And he goes on to tell us that because of their rejection, their hearts have been partially hardened and their eyes have been judicially blinded. And he says in Romans chapter 11, verse 25, he says, I want you to understand this mystery. I've got a mystery to tell you about, brothers. 
A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And you say, what, what's the fullness of the Gentiles? Well, that is the time of the church. That is right now. This is the mystery. It, when you look in the Old Testament, you don't see the church. The church is a mystery. And then because God turns to the Gentiles in a way of fulfilling, but you don't see that described in the Old Testament prophecies. But what you see is just Jesus coming to his people and then him coming and ruling and reigning. That's all you see in the Old Testament. And so he's saying, listen, there's a, there's a, there's a mystery. And, and during this time of hardening, God is going to reach out to the Gentiles. And, and how will it happen? He says, and, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, how's it going to happen? The deliverer will come from Zion. Who would that be? Well, that's Christ. And he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. In other words, when Jesus comes again, he's going to fulfill his covenant with Israel. His return requires, or his, this fulfillment of this prophecy requires that he return. And this is consistent with what we read in the Old Testament. Speaking through uh, the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 31, verse 35. God says, in the, he says it is in the strongest way possible that he will never permanently set Israel aside. Now, he has temporarily hardened their hearts and, and blinded them. But he won't do this permanently because he says this, Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. It if this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. You know what he's saying? If it ever stops being day and night, if we ever stop having day and night, that'll be the day that I cast off Israel and my dealings with them. Otherwise, I am going to fulfill my covenant with them. And in addition to, to just existing as a nation, God promised Israel salvation and peace and prosperity and security and a kingdom. He's made all these promises to Israel. And since none of those promises were fulfilled at Christ's first coming, he must return to fulfill those promises that he has made. Fifthly, God's judgment on rebels requires it. Now, the first rebel in the universe was an angel named Lucifer. We know him best as the devil or Satan. And Satan is the temporary ruler of this world. He's the god of this age, and he uses the power of death to enslave humanity. But Jesus, who is the rightful ruler, has promised that he will return and destroy Satan and he will reclaim all that has been taken from him. Now, when Jesus came the first time, when he died on the cross, he crushed Satan's head. But the full sentence has yet to be carried out because 
Satan and all of his angels are going to be thrown into the lake of fire where they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So it yet is to be fulfilled. In a similar way, Jesus is going to judge the unbelieving nations. These are people who have followed Satan and his rebellion against God. In Joel chapter 3 and verse 2, he says, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there. And let me assure you, friends, that includes America. And all the people who have turned their heart from God and denied him, they will stand in judgment before God one day. And Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 31, he says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. There he is reigning again. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And in Matthew 25 and verse 41, he says, And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me. That's the unbelieving you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Satan and all the unbelieving nations will stand before God. They will be judged and then they will be cast into the lake of fire forever. And since that judgment didn't take place the first time that Christ come, he must return to carry out that sentence. So what we see, what we're just seeing is that Christ, his coming is absolutely necessary for him to fulfill all the promises that he has made. So that's the first great truth that John presents to us. Christ's coming is of necessity. Then he tells us that Christ's coming is with glory. He's coming in great power and glory. Verse 7 there says, with the clouds. He's coming with the clouds. And clouds in in Scripture frequently symbolize the glory of the Lord. This this bright, shining cloud is, is a way of showing the manifest presence of God to his people. And you will remember that in the wilderness wandering, that God appeared to the people in a pillar of cloud. And it, and it seemed at night to be a, a cloud of fire. And it tells us also that, that Moses would, would go to the tent of meeting and this cloud of, of glory, this Shekinah cloud, which really means glory, would come down over Moses and Moses would, would meet with God. Why was God showing his glory in a cloud? Because even it, because we can't even look upon the gl- true glory of God. All we can look upon is a representation of the glory of God. If we looked upon the real glory of God, we would die instantly. But God is revealing himself in a cloud. When the temple and the tabernacle were dedicated, God came down in this glory. And and the Bible tells us that Jesus ascended to heaven on a cloud. When we're caught up together with him in the, in the sky, we're going to be caught up with him in the clouds, in the glory. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 30 says, 
And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and glory. Great glory. Those clouds present for us the picture of God's magnificent, incomprehensible glory. The appearance of... uh, Jesus in blazing glory, and then there's going to be kind of a lesser glory, the angels, and then all of his, him, those that are following him, we're coming. That is going to be a magnificent, incredible sight. Christ is coming with power and great glory. A third thing he tells us, Christ is coming visibly, and it kind of follows, certainly. But look what he says in verse 7. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Now, during the incarnation, as we've described already, Christ's glory was veiled by his human flesh. And only James and John and Peter got a glimpse of that glory at the transfiguration. But at the second coming, it says this, Every eye will see him. Now, his glory is going to become obvious to every human being on the earth. And it says in Matthew 24, in verse 7, For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. We read in verse 30, and then, we, the, as we've already read here, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. So he's coming visibly in a way that everybody can see. And John divides these people into two groups. He talks about the people who pierced him, and then he talks about all the tribes of the earth. Now, those who pierced him are not, it's not a reference to the Roman soldiers, but a reference to the unbelieving Jews who, who instigated the death of Jesus. And Peter makes it clear that that was the case when he preached on the day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Now there's your Roman soldiers, the hands of godless men. See, verse 7 is a reference to Zechariah 12 and verse 10, where God says this. He says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, this is Israel, the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In other words, Israel's mourning at this time is going to be mourning of repentance. They're going to, God's going to pour out grace. So he's going to take away that hardening. He's going to take away that blindness. He's going to give them grace, and they're going to see that he is truly their Messiah. 
And many of these people are going to be saved. There's going to be 144,000 Jewish evangelists proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they're going to have all kinds of converts. And Israel's going to come as a whole like a stream uh, coming to Christ. It's going to be an amazing thing. And John then describes the, the second group in verse 7 as all the tribes of the earth, which he is a reference to the unbelieving Gentile nations. See, like the Jewish people, they too will mourn over Christ. But unlike the Jewish nation, they are not going to mourn in repentance. The word mourn is a word that literally means to cut. It means to cut. And it comes from the idea, this word comes from the idea of pagans when they were grieving or where they were in intense anguish, they would cut themselves and gash themselves. You remember in 1 Kings chapter 18 when Elijah was facing the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel and those prophets were crying out to their God to bring fire down from heaven and it says that they began to to gash themselves. They began to cut themselves until the blood squirted out and they wailed. They cajoled. What were they doing? They were trying to get the attention of their God. They were mourning and wailing. And as they do, see, they're just trying to get the attention of their God. But what they're, what they're picturing here is the kind of wailing that was associated with this word mourn. But they're, they're, they are mourning, not in repentance, but in terror. Because they realize their doom. It says in Revelation 9.21, And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. And what happens? As a result, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 7 says, The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, to those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. You see, Jesus coming with a terrifying event for the unbelieving so let's stop right here for a moment and review. Jesus is coming. That is an absolute certainty. And it is also absolutely necessary for God to fulfill all the promises that he has made. For God to carry out his plan for the church. For God to carry out his plan for Israel. And for God to carry out his Promised judgment upon the rebels of the earth, both angelic and human. And when we see him coming, he's going to be coming with great glory. He's going to be coming in a visible way where every eye will see him. And when he does, some are going to mourn in repentance and some are going to wail in terror. Now, when we talk about the second coming... It's not uncommon for people to get very confused about this. What does the second coming actually entail? Well, if we've been talking about it today, what are we hearing about? Well, we've been hearing about Jesus appearing in the sky in great glory, coming with his angels, coming in retribution, coming in judgment, coming to the earth. I mean, it sounds like a, 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 a terrible, horrible, horrible, terrifying thing, doesn't it? 
But, you know, there are other scriptures, sometimes when we read about the, we talk about this, where it talks about Jesus coming like a thief. It says in, in Revelation sixteen fifteen, behold, I'm coming like a thief. Uh, in First Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 2, he says, you yourselves know that full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Peter adds to that, 2 Peter 3.10. But the day of the Lord will be will come as a thief in the knife. Night. That'd be good. Thief's got a knife. <laughs> you know, the, the purpose of a thief is to come softly, silently, unannounced, and not be caught, not be seen. Right? See, there's some some aspects of the second coming that can be confusing and sometimes seem contradictory to people. So I mean, it just doesn't make sense. To them. I can't put this together. So let me, let, me, let's, let me bring to your attention some of the confusion about the second coming. I want to put up a graph here and show you this. See, sometimes we look at this and we hear, well, he comes like a thief in the night, quietly, unannounced. But on the other hand, we see that he comes with clouds and every eye will see him. It's like lightning in the sky. He comes in power glory. But then we see that the, the second coming is referred to as the blessed hope, a time of joy. Paul says, comfort one another with these words. But, but then on the other hand, well, it's, it's a day of judgment, of, of retribution, of, of the, all the tribes of the earth mourning. But then we look here, it's be ready. You don't know what day or hour that he will come. It's an hour when you think not. In fact, there are no signs but then look what Jesus says in his Olivet Discord. He says, after the tribulation, the Son of Man will appear. It will not come unless the apostasy comes first and, and the man of sin is revealed. In other words, there are all kinds of signs. What are the signs of your coming? And Jesus begins to talk about that. But then on the other hand, look here. We will be caught up in the air to meet him in the clouds. On the other hand, he comes with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on earth. So the question comes, well, how do we reconcile these differences? And I would say this, by understanding that the second coming is not one event, event but is actually encompasses many events. It, it, uh, it's a series of events that the Old Testament writers refer to as the day of the Lord. Let's look at our graph one more time. In reality, the second coming, or the day of the Lord, encompasses all the events from the rapture of the church, the tribulation period, the, re, the you know, Armageddon, the return of Christ, uh, the, where Satan is bound, the millennial reign, where Satan is released, and all the way to the great white throne judgment. It encompasses all of those events. And sometimes... When people are hearing certain parts or elements of those judgments, you get confused. Well, where am I? Uh, I thought Jesus was supposed to come back to the earth. Well, wait a minute. I thought Jesus was supposed to come in the air. We get confused by that. But it's called the day of the Lord. And you heard when you, uh, a couple of references there that Peter calls it the day of the Lord. Paul calls it the day of the Lord. They're referring back to the Old Testament about the judgment that would come. Now, let me, let me show you this.
from, a, from an Old Testament perspective. In the Old Testament, Christ's first coming and his second coming are oftentimes blended together into one prophecy so that you can't see the difference. It sounds like one event. For example, a passage we read earlier, Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. What's that? That's his incarnation. That's the first coming. But then he says, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. What's that? That's the second coming. That's his exaltation. But you see, the way you, when you read that in the Old Testament, like many of the Jews did, it sounds like this son's going to be born and he's going to be the king right there. All one. Prophecies are, are often, uh, I use the word foreshortened. But let me show you a drawing. Now, some people ask me, did, did I draw that? No, I didn't draw this because... If I had drawn it, that would be oatmeal cookies or pecan pie instead of potato chips. <laughs> but this is a foreshortened drawing. Now, imagine you're going to draw my arm, okay? If you draw my arm this way, you can tell where my shoulder is, my elbow, my wrist. You can tell how long my fingers are, and you can tell how far I am from potato chips. But when you turn the drawing this way, you can't tell where my, el- my shoulder is, my elbow, my wrist. You can't even tell how, really how long my fingers are. And you can't tell how far I am from the potato chips. All the space elements are removed and you look at it as one event, one thing. When we, what we're doing is we're looking at a chart. We're talking about all the elements on that chart. You know, the, the rapture, the tribulation, the second coming, the... The millennial kingdom, the final judgment. We're looking at all those things like this. What if we take that chart and we turn it like this? What if I foreshorten it? Then it looks like this. It looks like the day of the Lord, the second coming. Yeah, there's the, the rapture of the church. Yeah, there's the great tribulation. There's the Christ returning to earth. There's the millennial kingdom. There's eternity. But it's all one, it's all one picture. It's all one thing. It's what I'll call foreshortened prophecy. So sometimes the writers are talking about the day of the Lord this way as one thing. And sometimes they're talking about the day of the Lord in terms of one particular thing, element out of that. Does this make sense? If y'all do this, it really helps me. I spent a long time trying to make, trying to make up this stuff. <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> now... If you'll notice there, what we really get confused about are two events that involve Christ coming. The rapture of the church and Christ's return to the earth. So what I want to do is I want to, I want to see a comparison. Let's compare what we call the rapture with the return of the second coming of Christ. So first of all, in the rapture, Jesus comes like a thief into the night to receive his church in the air. rest of the world doesn't get it. rest of the world doesn't see that. We're caught up to be with the Lord in the air. But when Christ returns the second time, 
when he comes to the world, he returns with his bride. That's with us because he's already caught us up and with his angels in glory and, and power on the earth. Does this make sense? Okay. After we're caught up, there's the seven-year tribulation begins shortly after the rapture of the church. Then what happens? Well, the millennial kingdom is established after the second coming. Then the event is imminent. It could happen at any time. This very moment. I know the Lord won't do that, but I keep trying it. <laughs> it can happen right now. And then this, this, this event is preceded by numerous signs. And that's, in fact, that's what we're going to be looking at in the book of Revelation. All the signs that are going to happen before the coming of Christ. It's called a message of comfort and hope to believers. Comfort one another with these words. But really, when you look at the second coming, well, it's a message of warning for and judgment for unbelievers. Then the church is of primary importance in the rapture, whereas Israel is significantly important. One of the primary things that God is doing in the seven years of tribulation is he's bringing Israel back. He's restoring him. He's saving them. We keep going. We find that the, the rapture is a mystery. Why? Because the church is a mystery. Remember that mystery we talked about? But, but the second coming, well, it's predicted in both the Old and New Testaments. Uh, keep going here. We have the, there's the judgment seat of, of Christ for believers occurs, and then the sheep and the goat the judgments occur. Antichrist and the world are judged. Only believers are directly affected in the rapture. All people are affected at the second coming. The church is taken into the Lord's presence in heaven. All believers are brought into the millennial kingdom on earth to reign with Christ on the earth. So there's some big differences between the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ. We go up. We have our judgment, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and then we come back with Christ. One final truth. Christ is coming certainly. In verse 7, the last part of it, it says, So it is to be, amen. So it is to be is the Greek, amen. That's what it means. So it is to be. It's amen in Greek. Amen is, is amen in Hebrew. It means so, so it be. So let it be. In other words, it's certain. And verse 7 goes on. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, you understand that the Lord God puts his signature on this prophecy, the prophecy of the second coming as is presented in this previous verse. And three of his divine attributes guarantee the certainty of this pledge. First, there is his omniscience. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Now, Alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet, Omega is the last letter in the Greek alphabet. And with all the letters of the alphabet, you can contain all the knowledge of the universe. This is a way of describing the fact that God, that Jesus, that God, knows everything. He has all knowledge. He is omniscient. 
He knows everything. And when, and when he tells us that it's going to happen, it's going to happen. But then, he, then we have his omnipresence, as it's described here. The one who is and who was and who is to come. See, God is transcendent. He's eternal in his presence. God is unchanging. He's not subject to time or space. God sees everything happening in a moment in time because he is eternal. And so when God says it will happen in his eternal, omnipresent being, he said it will happen. It's certain. And finally, we see his omnipotence. God as he says, the Almighty. And since he's all-powerful, nothing can keep him from carrying out his sovereign purpose. He knows all things. He is everywhere all at once. And he has all power. So when Jesus, when, when God says that Jesus will return, it is absolutely certain. See, the challenge of the book of Revelation is to make people ready for his return. It's certain that he's returning. The question is, are you ready for his return? John Phillips writes this. One of the most stirring pages in English history tells of the conquest and crusades of Richard I, the Lionhearted. While Richard was away trouncing Sandalin, his kingdom fell on bad times. His sly and graceless brother John usurped all the prerogatives of the king and misruled the realm. The people of England suffered, longing for the return of the king and praying that it might be soon. Then one day, Richard came. He landed in England and marched straight for his throne. Around that glittering coming, many tales are told, are, are, are told, woven into the legends of England. One of them is the story of Robin Hood. John's castles tumbled like ninepins. Great Richard laid claim to his throne, and none dared stand in his path. The people shouted for their delight. They rang peal after peal on the bells. The lion was back. The lion was back. Long live the king. And he says, one day, a king greater than Richard will lay claim to a to a realm greater than England. Those who have abused the earth and its substance his dom- and seized his domains and mismanaged his world will all be swept away. See, only those who love him and love his appearing are ready for his return. And my question to you is, are you ready for his return? Let's pray. Our Father, again, we thank you for this incredible preview of the second coming. And I know that many here, many believers' hearts have been encouraged and strengthened. And I I, I thank you for that. But Lord, I know that there are also hearts here that are not really 
prepared. Not ready for your return. For us, it'll be its comfort. For us who believe it is its encouragement, its, its strength. But those who are not ready, God, it's, it's terrifying. It's truly terrifying. And I pray, Lord, that you would draw hearts to yourself this morning. That you'd help people recognize their, their need of you, their need to be prepared, because it's absolutely certain that you are returning. It's absolutely certain that we all stand, every eye will see you. Maybe not on the day you return, but every eye will see you. We all will stand before you one day. And we will give an account. So God, we pray that you prepare hearts. Listen, if, if you have never trusted Jesus, if you're uncertain about it, you know what you can do to that? You can call upon him. Because the Bible says that for whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you just say, Lord, I, I know you are the king. And I want you to rule over my life. I, I, want, I want to trust you. I want to be a believer. I want to be ready for when you return. If you say that to him, you will be ready. You see, love, living, he loved us. He showed us what God is like, all of his grace and mercy. Dying, he saved us. Buried, he carried our sins far away. Rising, he justifies freely and forever. But one day, he's coming as king. My question is, is he your king? Or have you taken his kingdom and used it for your own purposes? Are you living for yourself or are you living for the king? Let me encourage you, please, turn to the king. And let him give you his wonderful, gracious reward and have absolute confidence as he comes. Just call upon him now and say, God, be my king. Father, help us now to respond to you in faith. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.